You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. And this brings us to the central question, the burning question. How do we slow down and stop while sustaining our civilization and continuing to bring millions out of poverty? Not by being virtuous, not by going to the bottle bank and turning down the thermostat and buying a smaller car. That merely delays the catastrophe by a year or two. Any delay is useful, but it's not the solution. This matter has to move beyond virtue. Virtue is too passive, too narrow. Virtue can motivate individuals, but for groups, societies, a whole civilization, it's a weak force. Nations are never virtuous, though they might sometimes think they are. For humanity en masse, greed trumps virtue. So we have to welcome into our solutions the ordinary compulsions of self-interest and also celebrate novelty, the thrill of invention, the pleasures of ingenuity and cooperation, the satisfaction of profit. Oil and coal are energy carriers, and so in abstract form is money. And the answer to that burning question is, of course, exactly where that money, your money, has to flow, to affordable, clean energy. Imagine if I was standing in front of you 250 years ago, you, a collection of country gentlemen and ladies, predicting the coming of the first industrial revolution and telling you to invest in coal and iron, steam engines, cotton mills, and later, railways. Or a century or so later, with the invention of the internal combustion engine, I foresaw the growing importance of oil and urged you to invest in that. Or a hundred years on, in the microprocessors, in personal computers and the internet and the opportunities they offered. So here, ladies and gentlemen, is another such moment. Do not be tempted by the illusion that the world economy and its stock exchanges can exist apart from the world's natural environment. Our planet, Earth, is a finite entity. You have the data in front of you, you have the choice. The human project must be safely and cleanly fueled, or it fails, it sinks. You, the market, either rise to this and get rich along the way, or you sink with all the rest. We are on this rock together, and you have nowhere else to go. Ian McEwen is the author of 13 books, including On Chesil Beach, Atonement, Saturday, The Comfort of Strangers, Black Dogs in Amsterdam. He's won the Booker Prize, the National Book Critics Circle Award, the W.H. Smith Literary Award, the Whitbread Award, and the Somerset Mom Award. His new novel is Solar. Thank you for joining me, Ian. It's a real pleasure. Ian, a short story that haunts me to this very day is one by Harlan Ellison, in which a rich and wealthy and famous man, much like the main character in your book, Solar, uh, decides he needs to know when the peak of his life was. He goes to a great deal of trouble. He raises a very dangerous demon. He's standing there in a cave confronting this hideous monster, and he asks him, when will I achieve the peak of my perfection? And the demon replies, when you were 12 years old at that birthday party. That's a very cruel demon. And it's a, a lesson that we learn quite well in, in your new novel. One, the, the creation of this character, 
Michael Beard. It is really wonderful on a sentence level, on a plot level. Uh, Talk about what brought you into the mind of this man. Well, this is, as you suggest, uh, a character-led novel. Um, Michael Beard slowly swam into focus through the mists. And I guess the first time I caught a glimpse of him was when I went to a climate change conference in Germany at which all the speakers were Nobel Prize winners. And I mingled with about 30, 40 of these men, and they were all men, and they were all alpha men. They were bull scientists. These were guys who had got the prize. They weren't used to being in herds of of, of Nobel Prize winners, so that was quite amusing. But what really struck me was they had this fabulous of frisson, like medieval halos of ego and splendor. And yet, they were all men of a certain age. And it wasn't quite at their 12th birthday party, but their moment in life lay well back in their mid to late 20s or 30s, especially in math. You know, you peak early like like an athlete. Mm -hmm. You could do your best work at 25. And the rest of your life, you could just be grand and um, you know, still teach, of course, and um, make grant applications and run powerful departments. But the real science is now being done by younger people. Uh, so at that meeting, and I was only there because I was asked along to give an after-dinner speech to the Nobel Prize winners, and I was like a sort of after-dinner mint, you know, <laughs> in a kind of room full of bristling persona. On my way back and and the flight from Berlin to London, I thought, whoever emerges out of the mist as the main character, I hereby award him a Nobel Prize. I'm going to make him live in the shadow of his former self, just as your character in the short story lives uh, tragically in the shadow of uh, the 12-year-old birthday party. The point, actually, though, of peaking is I hope the character in that story thought that the peak might still be ahead. Mm-hmm. He thought it was ahead. And that's a problem for all of us, isn't it, to know when do we peak as a human, as a as a husband, a wife, uh, an artist, a broadcaster. <laughs> when do we start to get worse and when is a good moment to check out you know, before um, you know, our failures rise before us like demons? <laughs> that's a, well, that's an interesting way of putting it. Your character, you describe him at one point. Uh, with a wonderful phrase that I've never heard used before, as a public intellectual. And and, and I like this phrase. And, and I, it describes you. Public intellectual fairly often used. Um, and every now and then a magazine will say, you know, who are the public intellectuals? People who uh, address public issues... Um, often with a background in you know international relations or economics or uh, classical civilization and uh, i i thought it was a phrase that was much more used in the united states than than here i mean it's a sort of phrase that i associate with the new york review of books mm. uh, but yes it's it's pretty current i can't lay any claim to inventing it now uh when we meet uh michael beard it's this is a thoroughly 21st century book and and uh, tell us what part of his life, where is he in his life when we meet him? Well, Michael Beard uh, 
probably in his early 50s when we start, in the year 2000, and he is coming to the end of yet another marriage, his fifth. Um, he's been married to a very beautiful woman um, called Patrice. And Michael Beard's a philanderer. He's a two-timer. He's uh, got a colossal appetite, not only for junk food. And yet, as the novel opens, for once he is the cuckold and his wife is having an affair with their builder and he is discovering the true humiliations of a situation that he's inflicted on others at other times. So it starts in the middle of a, a decline and um, the builder actually becomes a, an important figure in a, a later plot of this novel. But he's introduced to us really as a man who at the same time as being um, deeply sceptical about climate change heads up a, a unit, a government unit for... Um, uh, researching um, technologies in renewable energy, rather like your uh, National Renewable Energy Lab <clears throat> out in Golden, uh, Colorado, a place that I visited during the research for this book. And in the process of the early stages of this novel, uh, an accident occurs that will put into Michael Beard's hands a potential technology which he thinks could save the world from overheating. One of the things that I, I loved about this book was the way that you managed to create sympathy for for Michael. We really like him, and I think it's by virtue of of the prose at at a, at a sentence level, because you inject this novel with lots of humor, but it's not at anybody's expense, really. Well, I'm very glad you warmed a little to him, because I do run into people who say he's such a monster, he's so loathsome, he's so terrible, and I begin to feel, uh-oh, something wrong with my moral scale of values because everyone else can see that he's uh, uh, a bad person. He's not evil, but he is a scoundrel, mm -hmm. and uh, I guess his saving grace is he has a certain degree of a perspective on himself, and he is also formidably clever, and I think we do forgive clever people maybe more than we forgive stupid people. But he's also stupid in a way that only very clever people can be. So, I mean, it is somewhat complicated. If you have um, a fat fool at the centre of your fiction, then you stand in the very long and broad shadow of John Falstaff, mm. of Shakespeare's Falstaff, mm -hmm. uh, the archetypal scoundrel. A man whom, if we met in real life, we probably would loathe. He stinks, he's a drunk, you know, we'd cross the street to avoid. But Shakespeare persuades us to love him and forgive him. And why? Well, partly the language and partly a, a little bit of smoke and mirrors that makes us feel that actually we partake of all his weaknesses and uh, we forgive him because he's a life force, because he's on the side of just sheer uh, insistent uh, life. And so, you know, we're on Falstaff's side when he's famously rejected by his old friend Hal at the end of Henry. Um, the other archetypal figure, and maybe he's too recent to be genuinely archetypal, but he's a f hero of American fiction, a man of not great wit, very narrow education, uh, not particularly nice. And I'm talking here of, of um, Updike's Rabbit. Mm -hmm. Now, he's a guy who 
you know, sleeps with his son's wife and, you know, who really is full of a lot of ungenerous thought and yet Updike, by an extraordinary trick, makes him the filter for his um, analysis of four decades of American social history and of a very complex and chaotic private life. So there are examples of how, and, you know, I'm one of those novelists always looking around uh, to see how people have dealt with problems. All, all writers are readers. Uh, so I say I tentatively tread in the shadow of um, these two superb writers um, and try to convince the reader partly by force of language, partly by the hope that people will project some of their own uh, misdemeanors and errors onto Michael Beard, that they will, if not love him, at least sort of forgive him. You know, one of the things you said about him, and I think this is one of the reasons he's appealing, is that no matter what, whether he's at his prime or past it, he's a, a creative force, and, and he's not evil. He, he, he's, a, he's a man who wants to bring something in the world, and he has the talent and the intelligence to bring all, something really great into the world, potentially. But he's also somewhat inept socially, well, I mean, the thing he wants to bring to the world, he steals from another man and uh, sends uh, his wife's lover to prison for 16 years um, to cover his own tracks or just to avoid any blame that might come his way. So, uh, you know, he's certainly got his downside and um, he has a, a terrible weakness for junk food. And I suppose that you know, we, we in the West have more than our fair share of the planet's resources um, if we're not addicted to junk food there's there is some other thing that we almost certainly will have whether it's a dog or an suv or uh, a plane trip that does use up a lot more energy than you know many of our fellow citizens on the other side of the globe so uh, even if we don't think we're greedy we're in a greedy culture mm. and so we're we're in there with michael beard to some extent i i that's true i mean we sympathize with him because we share many of his foibles and, and uh, maybe he's worse than us, but he still seems kind of like a... He, he doesn't seem like a ill-intentioned guy. Well, I'm glad, Rick, that you feel a little more warmly to him than some of my readers who've been thoroughly repelled by him, and I think um, I think perhaps they're exaggerating. Now, one of the things we see here, uh, uh, this is a portrait of a man, and he is a serial philanderer. He, he from, from the beginning to end, no matter what relationship he's in, he's also in another one. He's almost never monogamous. And, and there are lots of people who think men are this way by inclination. And, and one of the things that um, I think is, is interesting is the way you show his mind operating uh, the, it's almost like a man swinging from one ring to another. Yes. Uh, he's the sort of guy who, when he comes uh, into Heathrow Airport uh, and stands in the immigration line and then sees that the officer who's dealing with his passport is a young, pretty girl, thinks automatically that he'll invite her out for dinner. And he's always inviting complete strangers out to dinner. And the point is that sooner or later, someone will say yes. 
he can take a hundred refusals if he can get one acceptance. Uh, the point is, not everyone says no. And one of the pleasant mysteries of, of human behavior is that occasionally you'll see a short, fat, bald, unprepossessing guy, and on his arm is an incredibly beautiful woman. And you wonder, you know, what is it that this guy has? A power, money, uh, a fabulous sense of humor, an amazing sexual performance in bed. We don't know. We can only guess. But it's wonderful to speculate. And, and you see the reverse, by the way. I've seen the reverse, too. Um, an incredibly uh, uh, godlike young man um, with a you know rather plain-looking girl on, on his arm. And you wonder what the chemistry is there. So this is wide open, anyway, for a novelist. When you are creating this character... Um, he has a, a wonderful character arc. And I, I wonder if you talk to me about, you say this man kind of swam up to you through a sea of Nobel Prize laureates that you met. Uh, how do you go about crafting a novel such as this? Uh, well... Are you an outliner? I had one or two sort of little openings. Um, first of all, the novel began... Uh, with me on a plane some other occasion trapped um, in a stack uh, waiting to land and the plane just rotating in the sky for 45 minutes we were coming in in rush hour <clears throat> and I was poised above uh, southern England and I realised that all my past was down there and I thought this was a way to begin a novel you have your character in a hurry desperate to get down there but forced to stay up here and reflect and on all four points of the compass, there's a marriage, there's his student life in Oxford, there's his childhood over to the east in Essex, there's his raucous first marriage down on the South Downs. Uh, and that's where I started. I just sat there in the plane making notes, thinking this would be a way in. And given that I'd already uh, awarded the fellow a Nobel Prize, at least I had enough then to write not a great deal, maybe three or four thousand words. And those three or four thousand words gave me the texture, uh, the language in which the story could be told. That, And it's that, the tone of voice. If I can get that, and it doesn't really matter what's happening on the page, um, as long as I can begin to get the, the texture and quality of the hidden character of the narrator then I can begin to make the character of the, the central character of this book. So no real plan. I didn't quite know where I was going. I knew I was going to get him down to the Savoy Hotel to deliver a lecture to some investors. Uh, at that point, I hadn't done the research on um, the technology that I would bestow on him, artificial photosynthesis, so I didn't know anything about that either. And in fact, uh, I worked on this for for a good while, maybe a year, and realised that actually I was not at the beginning of the novel at all. I was in the middle of it. And I had to go back five years and start all over again, right at the beginning with this fifth marriage that I was talking about. So it's a groping, hands and knees, magnifying glass process with sudden overviews. Uh, I don't have... Um, I'm not one of those writers who has a, a map or a plan right from the very beginning. But within, within a year, it, it starts to come clear where I need to end up. 
And I did know by the time I, I was two-thirds of the way through that this novel had to end in the deserts of New Mexico with the plot um, spinning many, many plates on sticks and lots of chickens coming home to roost. And so I set off with my wife, uh, firstly to visit um, the NREL in, in Golden, Colorado, but then we took a car down into New Mexico and I hunted the, des the desert for a little township where this novel could end. And I finally found it in a charming place on Interstate 10 called Lordsburg. And that's where I thought, now I can see it. Now I'm in the place, the rather dusty, hot place, um, the, the big cafeteria where he was going to um, confront uh, a number of uh, bits of chaos of his life catching up with him. Uh, then I could head towards that as long as long as I could keep all the plates spinning on the stick. And I suppose this is this has been uh, the most intensely plotted novel I've ever written. The plot is really beautifully architected and, and, and carried out with the at at, the, at a plot level and at a sentence level. I mean, it's just it's really gorgeously written. I like plots, and uh, there, there is a there is a tradition of in the English novel. Uh, derived, I think, from the 18th century, where every character hurries towards the end to be on the stage, as it were. Uh, and so they all have to gather uh, the builder, even the, an email from the first wife that we haven't heard of for a long time, the man who went to prison, the guy back at the um, centre uh, for renewable energy in England that Beard controls two of the women in his life, the daughter he never wanted. They're all piling in, and they've all got to appear in the right moments in the very last scene of the final act. And and I know I'm not alone in this among novelists because I've talked to them about it. It's that stage you walk around dreading that you're going to uh, walk under a bus just when you've just got the last 10,000 words to, to finish. And you can't really think of anything else. You've got all these bits going at once. Uh, you long to end, and yet when you're in, when you're back, as I am now in the sort of no man's land between novels, I long to be back with that total involvement. I miss I, it. Almost like the the man in the plane hovering above his house, waiting to come home. Yes, yeah, waiting, waiting for something that will push me into writing something else. Y you're. You've been interested in global warming for a long time beyond the scope of this novel, haven't you? Yes, I've been reading about it um, and uh, talking about it since, I guess, well, I became aware of it in the late 90s. It was quite a concern for me, and I started going to conferences, not because I thought I was going to write a novel, but I was just fascinated and appalled by what was happening. Um... I like the company of scientists anyway, and I know a fair number. And and so I drifted from um, knowing a number of biological scientists into meeting physicists and economists who, who themselves have been drawn into climate science. But every time I thought of a novel, I thought the whole subject matter was so hostile. Mm. It's... Um, offers itself to a lot of preachiness. Mm. Uh, it's so impacted with with morals. Uh, it's got a lot of hard and fairly boring data. Uh, it's lacking in certainties. I mean, um, this is not like 
um, quantum mechanics. Uh, it, well, maybe it is like quantum um, mechanics as you describe quantum well, mechanics. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, it's a mistake to think that... Um, well, there's more the, math. The, the, so there's uncertainty in the uncertainty principle. The, the, mm. There's an awful lot of certainty in Heisenberg. Um, as long as you repeat the, your observations. Of mm -hmm. But uh, I couldn't see a way into this. And I didn't. I can't say I was trying very hard, but every time I thought of it, I thought, no, no, that's, that'll, that'll be the worst novel you ever write to go in there. But it was only when I'd been, first of all, to that conference, and then I went to the Arctic with some friends, um, scientists and artists, and we were frozen oh my in God. to... Uh, we were living on a boat for a week that was on a fjord, but the fjord was frozen. It's mm -hmm. my, f my favorite kind of boat where you can walk off, you know, mm. without sinking. Uh, you can walk out onto the ice. Um, I fear the claustrophobia of boats, not being able to leave. Mm. either the people or the seasickness. Uh, we had a lot of fun on that boat for a week. Uh, More than your characters do in the book, I hope. Well, uh, <laughs> they even, have some even fun. Beard has a little fun in the end. <laughs> uh, finds himself faintly popular for the first time in his life. Uh, we had a lot of passionate, um, idealistic discussion about the world and putting it to rights, especially in relation to climate change. And meanwhile, there was this growing disintegration of the, of the boot room, as we called it, the kit room next door, where we had to remove all these thick layers of snowmobile suits and balaclavas and helmets uh, so that we didn't bring ice and snow into the living quarters. And this little room, which must have been a trillionth the size of, of the planet we were organising, fell into greater and greater chaos as the week went by. And it was this disparity between our ideals and practice that gave me a first hint that maybe maybe humor was 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 one way into this. If I was going to write a novel about human nature confronting a problem, then perhaps a kind of tolerant humor and skepticism would be be the best way in rather than of course, ranting at the reader to go to the bottle bank and, and downgrade for a smaller car or whatever. Well, this book is, is really funny. I, I found myself laughing out loud quite a bit. And what's interesting, though, is that it's, hum it's humor at nobody's expense. A lot of it evolved just from the kind of prose you write. And for, well, for example, when he finds out his girlfriend is pregnant, he, the situation was grave, indeed, graphic. <laughs> I mean, there's so, there's so many great sense <laughs> in here. Um, one of the it it strikes me that uh, you have some interesting views of um, science for science and science for the world. Uh, the problem with with scientists is, uh, unfortunately for us, that they unlike science or what sci science studies. They're they're human, aren't they? Well, and uh, what else would we expect? Uh, I think Mr. Part of, Spock. Yeah, quite. And I I think Spock has a lot to answer for here. Uh, I think part of the current public disillusionment with the whole matter of of climate change has got something to do with unreal expectations. Mm -hmm. So that. Um, 
the UEA email, um, which actually I think didn't show very much. And I, I hardly think there's a, that much devilry was exposed by them. But still, what we saw was a bit of laboratory envy and uh, and a bit of extrapolation of results. But I think that because people assume that scientists are the new high priests and in fact turn out to be just like many priests uh, <laughs> I was uh, going to say have feet of clay um, the, the, the the pendulum swings the other way and there's a there's a violent reaction we, we live in such a sort of fractured world in which people constantly cast around for uh, intellectual or moral authority they don't find it in politicians or journalists or artists of any kind and I suppose that every now and then let's say when there's a scare about an epidemic or uh, some virus or bacteria we look to the scientists to tell us exactly you know, what the truth is and of course even with epidemics and even with the fact that we can in an afternoon sequence the genome of a of a bacteria, uh, scientists can only talk in probabilities and people get sort of cross about this. You are our new priests and yet you're not dealing in certainties for us. Uh, you are our new priests and you're exchanging emails uh, that expose a great deal of rivalry and, um, and a little bit of skullduggery. Science is very messy, uh, human, full of egos and um, those Nobel Prize winners in Potsdam certainly prove that to me. But in fact, the enterprise of science is much greater than any single practitioner. We invented a thought system, let's say, for convenience sake, about 500 years ago, that self-corrects. It proceeds, as someone once famously said, by funerals. You know, when, when an old man, an old woman dies and with, with a wrong idea, there's, you know, there's some other younger bucks coming up behind with some fresh ideas it's like a ship constantly correcting its course on, on the vector for its destination which is to reveal as much as it can about the physical world in, in some particular domain not many other thought systems are like this that have blasphemy if you like um, skepticism uh, adversarial peer review built into its process. Uh, religion certainly doesn't. It tends to rest on you know, revealed truths that are fixed, and mm -hmm. that's often a great source of a problem for, for religions. Um, you know, we try to live your life by um, the attitudes and moral understandings of a post-Iron Age people. It's, it's very difficult in the, in the modern world, or not always easy, and I accept that there might be some universal human truth. But there are often conditions of change, you know, the position of women, for example, or a thousand other things that make it very difficult for religion to be authoritative about how to live now. Um, science at least has the possibility of changing its mind when new evidence comes in. And um, we have to bear in mind, too, that climate science is, is very new. Um, the combined biosphere and uh, climate uh, and weather systems that we have make up for an entity that's 
probably even more complex than the human brain. I mean, it is astonishingly complex. And we're only just beginning to get to terms with it. So while I don't have any doubt that um, we're changing the climate, we're warming it, uh, and we're doing it mostly with uh, carbon dioxide and methane, what the consequences will be and how quick they'll be and how sensitive the climate is to these increases is still up for, for grabs. I mean, some people have spoken of a catastrophic 11 degrees and you know, down at the far end of the other way is, is 1.2 degrees. Everybody would hope it's going to be that. But science can't deliver a certainty on this. We mm -hmm. don't know enough about this yet. And I think this has caused a great deal of public anger. Well, you were talking about the post-Iron Age. I think we're in the Irony Age in your novel. The Irony Age. This is the, <laughs> the, the Holocene, yes. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, uh, I thought was very interesting an observation you make is that we always believe that we're uh, living in the end times, no matter we've we've been on the 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 edge of apocalypse for the past probably five hundred years, haven't we? Yes, and we do like to tie the fate of the Earth with our own fate, and I think it gives a little more meaning to life if we think that the Earth is dying just as we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, the the epigraph of this novel, and I just want to read it because I think it uh, is from John Updike's Rabbit is Rich. And this is um, what it says. It gives him great pleasure, makes Rabbit feel rich to contemplate the world's wasting, to know the earth is mortal too. And in there, I think, you know, Updike, as usual, traces a fault line of um, a little bit of selfishness in the sense that, yeah, the earth is coming to an end just as I am. Après moi la déluge. Um, we saw it, you know, I mean, Christianity is constantly throwing up end times in various sects. Mm -hmm. um, the great um, awakening uh, movements, the millennial uh, religions of the early 19th century swept across this country. Uh, we certainly had them in Europe in the 15th century. They swept across the plains of northern Germany, convinced the world was about to end, which gave them an excuse to, to slaughter Jews or bourgeois or I mean, there were uh, terrible things done in, in the wake of the knowledge that the world is about to end. Only the saved will be saved, of course. The unsaved, well, you can dispose of them now. So it's a terrible <laughs> mindset. And the unsaved have changed identity from time to time. Um, for Soviet communism, it was, you know, the kulaks and the bourgeois. And um, in the Chinese Cultural Revolution, they said about the extermination of middle-class intellectuals and professional people. Uh, obviously, the thousand-year millennial thinking of, of, of Nazism, it was the Jews. It needs an enemy, this mm -hmm. um, millennial thought. And then we democratized it with nuclear weapons, and it was everyone was going to die, <laughs> <laughs> except maybe um, the president of the United States in some bunker but and, and a few of his aides. Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove, yes. So uh, I think we're, we're fixated by ends, but that doesn't mean that the world isn't going to end. You know, I mean, that we mustn't you know, um, be lulled by the fact, simply because this has got a history, that it doesn't have a future. Um, if Kennedy had made some different decisions back there in 62, we might be, all, be well looking at a really different kind of landscape right now. I'm, 
seriously depopulated one. Christopher Hitchens once wrote, I will never forget where I was and what I was doing the day John F. Kennedy tried to kill me. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a fascinating uh, perception. A, an opening of his essay on the Cuba crisis, but um, anyway, typically perfect in its contrarian uh, sense. Talk about the the research when you embarked. You you have this idea of this character who's not a very nice man. He's a serial philanderer. You've got a lot of science in this book, and it's argue if it's not science fiction, um, it's certainly fiction about science. I talk about doing the research to make it seem plausible. Well, uh, apart from going out to uh, Golden, Colorado, I read a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I, most of the research was reading. Uh, I met, um, I was in the Galapagos last year, and I just finished this novel. And I met uh, a Cambridge mathematician and physicist. And it very soon struck me that he was a man who loved a bit of intellectual mischief. And we'd had some fascinating talks. And I said to him, if I give you the typescript of my novel, would you please uh, reverse engineer for me uh, the, the the prize that Michael Beard got? Because I don't really know what he did to get his prize. I mean, I say that um, Michael Beard changed our perceptions of um, Einstein's work on light. But I didn't really have any idea what what he'd done. How would I know? I just wanted to be it established that Michael Beard was famous because he was responsible for what was known as the Beard-Einstein conflation. So I asked uh, this physicist, uh, Graham Mitchison, if he wouldn't mind coming up with the work for this uh, in the form of the uh, citation at Stockholm for Michael Beard's prize. And so he entered completely into the spirit of this and... Uh, introduced a moment in 1972 when Richard Feynman, the great American physicist, breaks up a meeting by rushing into the hall, waving these papers written by Michael Beard, saying, he's cracked it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then Graham proceeded to um, tell us exactly how he had cracked it. So there was an amazing piece of luck for me to discover someone who, who wanted to come out and play. And uh, as soon as I received this citation for the mid-80s, 1980s. I couldn't give a particular date because there are real physicists involved. Um, then I knew that uh, it was time to send Graham Mitchison a case of champagne. So that was one piece of uh, real serendipity. One of the things that you talk about, um, particularly when you uh, got Michael on the, this boat that apparently you were on as well, um, strand up there in the Arctic, is just how much of an effect artists and even scientists can have on the world perception of these uh, of you know world you know threatening problems and you here you are writing a book about the very world threatening problem this is this is art aimed at exactly um, the same thing your artists in your book are taking and talking about yes I don't I don't really know what difference an artist um, can make about this, uh, except to reflect the problem. I mean, we can't come up with solutions. 
Uh, we don't know enough. We're not technologists. Uh, we also know that our art, even our, if it's painting or if it's the novel, either way, can really suffer if it becomes too didactic um, or too monothematic, too over-focused. So I think it's by reflecting the problem, by, f by reflecting, for example, uh, fault lines in human nature mm -hmm. that make this particular problem uh, rather difficult for us. That's the only way I think that art can flourish. For example, we're not very good at thinking in the long term. Uh, we are, have elaborate and fairly automatic uh, impulses to do each other favours and keep a tally of you know, where things stand, what evolutionary psychologists would call social accounting. But here we're being asked to perform favours for people we'll never meet, like our great-great-grandchildren, uh, and on a timescale that we're not used to functioning in. And it's also difficult for democracies. You know, uh, if you're going to be out of power or you're going to put yourself up for re-election in four years' time, you want life. You're trying to make life good for people in the immediate sense. So you want to keep the price of gas low and taxes low, and keep the same old coal-burning power stations going, and because otherwise you're going to create some short-term unemployment down in the Appalachians. Uh, it is rather difficult. In fact, it's rather it's interesting the way that the one country that's making fantastic strides with this is a repressive totalitarian command economy, China. Uh, they snap their fingers in Peking and say, we're going to have a colossal network of high-speed trains, we're going to have wind generators in every village, we're going to have vast solar arrays in the desert. Uh, then it starts to happen. Rather difficult in a democracy where you've got People saying, well, you know, we've got to have money spent on this or that and we mustn't threaten these or those interests and, by the way, you're standing for election next month. Uh, difficult problem there. And I think we can only reflect those, those particular difficulties. We can't solve them. One of the things that I think is really wonderful about this book is by virtue of focusing on... Uh, Michael Beard, who who is a, a, a flawed man that we that we like, and very he frustrates us too with his with some of his bad decisions. Um, that you manage to keep a very even, I think, political, scientific, skeptical hand through this whole novel. Did you find yourself, uh, you know, working this out as a balancing act and and. and mm. Not particularly. I mean, I, once I'd taken the decision, it's a very easy one to take, that this was not going to be an, a preaching novel, then uh, it, it follows that if you have a rogue, a scoundrel doing your thinking for you, you can think you know, in all directions. And every now and then he thinks things that I happen to think, and other times he thinks things that I would dissociate myself from entirely. And sometimes he... He thinks things that I have a prejudice and taste for but couldn't really publicly defend. Mm. Uh, so I, I, finding the right kind of character is always, in part, a pursuit of a certain sort of freedom. And Michael Beard, in his um, 
various deficiencies allowed me those freedoms. You know, lots of novels are, are motivated by love, by hate, by, you know, kind of these big emotions. And I think the emotion you mine a lot in this novel is an emotion that's very powerful, but not often written about, embarrassment. Embarrassment of the reader. Embarrassment of the reader and of, mm. of himself. I mean, there's a, every time, there's so many, this novel has a fairly significant cringe factor. There are a number of times when Michael Beard gets himself in positions uh, in which he is the comic victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's uh, uh, done in the hope that um, the reader will enjoy his company that much more. Uh, he's not, um, as we started out saying, not an evil man, but sometimes he you know, gets trapped in the most ludicrous and sometimes even farcical situations. It's worth thinking. I mean, uh, this all happened you know, after I'd finished my novel, but still I think it um, is worth remembering. We came to the end of what was called in environmental circles COP15, the um, huge uh, conference in Copenhagen in December last year, uh, probably unprecedented in human history that science, rationality, uh, had summoned the nation. Really, I mean, that's in effect what it was. It wasn't government policy to go to Copenhagen. It was science really had set the agenda to say, here is a problem, nations, please, get, please gather and come up with something real mm-hmm. to do about it. 192, I think it was, maybe 194 nations gathering Copenhagen. There's one side of our nature, extraordinary, uh, cleverness, very clever monkeys uh, arrange this talk, powwow. Then what happens? Another side of our nature gets in the way. Self-interest, short-termism, cabals, um, national self-interest. The thing begins to disintegrate in fast. The Chinese chief negotiator is locked out of the building for three days because his papers haven't been properly presented. Uh, There are long lines outside the main debating hall while there's a blizzard outside because the doors haven't been opened and they're here to talk about global warming. They're freezing to death. (laughs) There are elements of true farce about this situation and actually in in my very final draft of this novel and it won't be in the version you read you read um michael beard receives an email uh, as he's sitting in the cafe waiting for two of the women in his life to appear and everything is just collapsing around him he suddenly perks up because he gets an email inviting him to copenhagen which is starting in three months time uh, to address a conference of foreign ministers and he thinks to himself, I'm just the man for that place. I am the spirit of Copenhagen. Now, he, it took you a, a while to write this novel. And when you were writing this novel, you were living in the mind of a man who's, in, in many ways, kind of reprehensible, even though you your language makes him, I think, all likable to read about. Uh, how did it feel for you who is not Michael Beard, to be living in the mind of Michael Beard, at least as a literary figure? Well, I I, I had fun writing this novel. Uh, there was a certain kind of recklessness to having this this guy around. Um, and 
he was a useful vehicle to tease other... I mean, along the way, I had some fun teasing the British press and its sort of hysterical um, now, there was press a- storms. And um, I had a little bit of fun having Michael Beard confront uh, a postmodern academic who thinks that genes don't exist. And... <laughs> And various other little things. And I had a maybe return to something of the world of On Chesil Beach um, by reviving at the very end of the novel the story of Michael Beard's childhood and his time at Oxford as an undergraduate and uh, how he wooed his first wife. So I, I was able to sort of voice a little prejudice I had that... Um, us liberal arts know nothings who, you know, us liberal humanities types actually have a very soft time at college. I mean, we out of bed at midday or 2 p.m., occasional panic about a term paper, uh, spend the time reading novels and poems. I mean, what a life. I mean, it's a finishing school compared to what I know um, people doing hard subjects like physics and maths have to do. You know. Oh, no, it's terrible to sit out in a schoolyard and read Charles Dickens. It is terrible. <laughs> yeah, <it's> a... <laughs> I wonder if the whole thing isn't... Uh, and I don't think I could defend this as a public program, but I, mischievously the thought crosses my mind. The whole thing is a monstrous fraud, especially when literary types look down their noses at mathematicians and physicists who are up at 8 o'clock in the morning for the first lecture of the day at 9, six lectures in a row, five days a week, long practicals and experiments, You know, sometimes taking up bits of the weekend and getting their mind around things that none of us ever had to. You know, lifting heavy weights with trying to get your mind around. Try and get your mind around Dirac's equation. God, it's difficult. I mean, I, I couldn't even begin. I tried. Try and get your mind around general relativity or, uh, yeah, general relativity or special relativity, you know, the 1905 stuff. Uh, so that, that I had Michael Beard woo his first wife by boning up on John Milton, a person he's never heard of in his life, but he sp- spends a week reading like fury hating some of it, rather loving Paradise Lost, but finding Comus you know, ludicrous and boring, but still getting his mind around it, reading the best essays. He gets a, another student to help him with the reading list. Uh, and then he impresses the girl and you know, gets the girl, gets her into bed, marries her. But he crosses a, an important line. He says to himself, nothing that these people talk about in their tutorials was remotely difficult, remotely and you could do an English degree, moderate intelligence, moderate amount of work, and get a good degree. Now, he does get corrected by, I mean, 30 years later, he, he runs into a, a professor friend in, in uh, Hong Kong who says to him, look, if you had boned up on 90 poets over three years and seduced 90 girls and remembered all of them, the poets, that is, and synthesize that into an overview of literature, then you will have earned your degree in literature. And it's not as easy as you think. But Beard is not impressed by that argument at all. Now, Beard also, we mentioned at the beginning of this interview, he's a, a public intellectual, and he gets a, some comeuppance for, for this. 
when he makes some ill, well, it proved to be ill-advised comments about uh, the difference in the sexes. Yes, uh, he strays out of his field and makes some sort of Larry Summers-like remarks about mm-hmm. um, the fact that perhaps the brains of men and women are different and that women are better at language and um, mathematical reasoning. Uh, men are better at rotating objects in mental space and various other things. Uh, he doesn't argue that one is better than the other, but he argues that, that in, in cognitive terms they're different and that there are empirical, there's empirical research for this. And he unleashes a press storm. Um, what interested me about this debate was it should be the simplest, or at least a, let's not use the word simple, but it should be a matter of empirical research as to whether men and women have different brains. You'd think you know, we could just look at this and examine it. But the debate is ferociously ideological. Mm. You cannot wander into this just saying, well, I've looked at the evidence and it's this or that. Um, when Larry Summers said something similar uh, and pointed out that many women scientists chose to go into the biological sciences and that more men tended to go towards physics and maths, there were others who said, yes, but there are all kinds of cues and social cues and the cultural signals and expectations and you're measuring the wrong things. And, you know, a dust storm blew up of great intensity. And I thought, this is rather like the climate change debate. You know, it should be a matter of empirical research as to whether we are causing the Earth's climate to change. Uh, let's go out and look. But, you know, it is not. Um, it's, it's deeply embedded in faith and politics and all kinds of other things. And along the way, uh, I thought, well, why not then have a... Um, one of the sort of press storms that I've experienced in my own life. Um, why not let Michael Beard get entangled with the press um, on this very issue and have a public debate? So I arranged a public debate between Beard and um, um, various other academics and finds himself completely lost. I mean, very rapidly he realizes he's completely out of his depth. And it reminded me, I mean, I, I was prompted in part by um, Alan Sokal's, um, I don't know if you remember the hoax that he, when he submitted a paper to a, a sort of cultural context. Oh, type, right, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Sokal um, faced his critics in a public meeting. And he said uh, at some point something like, you know, surely, I mean, come on, tell me, do, do you think that gravity is a social construct? And um, someone stood up and denounced him for posing the question in, in those terms. And he was out of his depth in minutes because he didn't speak <laughs> the language of postmodernism. So I, I pinched some of all that um, to um, kind of spice up. And this is all a, a very long way of answering your, your, your question as to what it was like to live in the head of Michael Beard. Well, it was sort of fun, I have to say. It sounds like there was a bit of... Uh wish fulfillment in a sense going on in there that you could get to and that's I think maybe one of the pleasures of reading this book is we get to kind of be bad and yeah. even though we suffer the consequences uh, the, the the cringe factor is, is bearable yeah bad is the new good <laughs> I've been speaking with Ian McEwen his new novel is Solar thank you for joining me Ian it's been a real pleasure 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.